This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mount Man Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Slan. Thank you for listening. So as we had mentioned last month, we are doing a two-part series. Um, so again, our guest today is Katie Wolf, PTDPT, PRPC. She's a physical therapist specializing in pelvic floor rehab and has completed advanced training in pelvic health through Herman and Wallace. She has completed her pelvic health rehabilitation practitioner certification in 2020, her bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University, Hawaii, in exercise sports science with a minor in mathematics. She completed her doctorate in physical therapy at Eastern Washington University. She's a member of the American Board of Physical Therapy Association and has served on the Utah Physical Therapy Association Board as the nominating chair for the last four years. She's currently serving as the APTA Utah Public Relations Chair and the Utah Pelvic Health Special Interest Group President. Thanks for being here again today, Katie. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So again, last month we discussed the journey with our trans population when choosing to go from our male to female. And so today we're going to switch roles and we're going to discuss the opposite. So we're going to kind of go from conservative all the way through WPATH considerations, top surgery, bottom surgery, and all those different considerations for both the patient as well as any of those physical therapists out there listening to this podcast. To start off, Katie, let's maybe start with all those very kind of first-line options that these individuals might be choosing um, while beginning this journey. And so my understanding is kind of those kind of first options are going to be the top half in regards to binding for compressing the breast tissue to have more of that masculine look. Maybe talk to us about what binding is and then some medical considerations that we should be discussing with those patients or what these clients should understand um, to make sure that all the tissues stay healthy. Great. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. Binding is the practice of compressing the breast tissue to give the appearance of kind of a flat chest. So females that signed at birth may have breast development at different sizes and different kind of shapes and contouring. And people who may want to present as masculine or non-binary or kind of present a little bit more like a male may choose to flatten those breast tissues. There's a couple of different ways that we can bind and different ways that we talk about binding in this patient population. So there's compressive tank top type shirts, there's special bra wear that are a little bit more supportive or rigid. Um, Some people will choose to use more of like a trans tape and flatten the tissues. Um, We definitely don't recommend using ACE bandages or any kind of uh, utilitarian tape, so duct tape or any of the other tapes that are out there on the market, but tapes that are designed for this area. Um, When we bind, we want to limit it for a couple of hours. So six to eight hours is the longest that we recommend, but definitely less than 12. The more we compress those tissues, the more we worry a little bit about swelling, what's the blood supply like, kind of what does it mean for your posture? We have people kind of not work out in those situations. So that way it doesn't restrict the ribs and restrict the thoracic spine. Um, We want them to make sure that they're getting in the right fit for these binders. We don't want to be going too small where we get cutting into the the tissues or into the shoulders. Um, We definitely don't recommend some of the old practices of plastic wrap. That was another thing that some patients did once upon a time. And, um, And if we're thinking about wanting to progress to top surgery, we actually say bind less um, as you start to prepare for that. And we'll talk about top surgery a little bit later, but 
Um, when we're in those binders, we really want to be cognizant of not restricting those shoulders and not um, limiting the ability of the thoracic spine to bend and extend, but also the breathing patterns. Very nice. Very nice. And as a physical therapist, if we um, encounter a patient that commonly is utilizing these practices, what are some exercises and stretches that you think that we should be prescribing these patients in order to prevent some of the issues that you've brought up? Yeah. Um, the statistics are pretty daunting that anywhere from seven to eight patients out of 10 will experience some sort of musculoskeletal dysfunction and or irritation of their skin. So as physical therapists, we are experts in these areas. We're experts in watching for skin irritation, wound breakdown. We're experts in looking for restricted movement of breathing, the thoracic spine, shoulder um, rotation, shoulder range of motion. We're great at looking for tissue damage or compression. Oftentimes these binding tape tops are a very thick binder over the top of the shoulder. So looking for signs of um, thoracic outlet or skeletal deformities. And then also just being aware of like, what are their goals? What are their goals with these tissues? Um, is it just to look a little bit more masculine or is it to really try to compress? We want to watch for kind of swelling along the spine. And so as physical therapists, some of the great things that we can do is get that foam roller out. We love the foam roller, right? And so think about your lumbar lock rotation. Think about your thoracic cat-cow. Think about kind of getting into some lat stretching, pec stretching, corner stretch, anything that kind of opens up the anterior, kind of strengthens the posterior. Oftentimes these individuals are trying to hide those breast tissues. And so they'll be in a little bit more of that kyphotic posture. And so we will really want to encourage that upright posture, but also think about like our upper cross syndrome. So the are the scalenes getting a little bit tight? Are the are the upper traps getting tight? Kind of what's happening to their neck? But then as pelvic health therapists, we really love to think about that breathing and how um, we want to be breathing through that mid-back, breathing through our abdominals. Um, I always love doing open book and rotational stretches for the thoracic spines. We get, you know, we get very directional sometimes as therapists and thinking about that rota rotation and doing kind of a windmill on the wall or an open book rotation, or even some lower trap like liftoffs, YTIs. Those are all wonderful exercises to help these individuals who maybe are experiencing some upper thoracic or upper neck or shoulder discomfort because of binding. Absolutely. I mean, even our cis population with that are well endowed that don't really enjoy that extra tissue will also kind of go into that posture. And so I think really grabbing that ortho hat and going back to the books of, you know, straight out of PT school and that upper cross syndrome. Absolutely. And just kind of going back to the basics with that, for sure. I think sometimes we really focus on our like specialties and we need to kind of remember to like broaden, broaden our outlook still. Absolutely. Well, and even just giving some general guidelines about, you know, hey, some people will use patterns versus solids. Some people will, that helps kind of, um, give a little bit more dimension. Some people will choose to layer and all of those are strategies that can kind of minimize the appearance of breast tissues that we can even talk to patients about when it comes to some fashion choices. Oh, I love that. That's great. Awesome. Well, now let's kind of start down more of the surgical options. So I think a great way to start off is just to review those WPATH considerations for bottom surgery in this patient population. Katie, if you'll maybe review those with us, that would be awesome. 
Yeah, WPATH is the uh, World Health Association for Transgender Health, and they have set guidelines and standards over the years of what they recommend for patients in order to kind of proceed down these surgical interventions. They recently published the guidelines um, version eight, which is much more flexible than the version seven, where individuals now only need to have one letter of assessment from a mental health provider verifying that they truly are living in this gender, they feel this gender, they feel non-binary or kind of asexual, or they feel masculine, um, and that they are ready to move forward with surgery and they have that right mindset. We also want to make sure that their gender is congruent with what they're, they're living in. So are they identifying, are they meeting um, kind of the social, I don't want to say social standards, because that makes it sound like it's people weighing in on them, but are they expressing themselves the way that they want? And are they kind of um, demonstrating that consent to these surgeries? We also want them to make sure that they've um, have been stable on their hormone regime for at least six months. So outward gonads do not necessarily need to be removed or have had surgery prior to um, meeting these WPATHIC uh, requirements, but we definitely want them to be stable with their hormone routine and kind of looking into uh, where, where their mental capacity and their mental feeling about these surgeries match their outward, and that's what we want to help them with. Great, Katie. Thank you for describing those WPATH considerations. As we know, insurance and things kind of take a while to catch up to adjustments made within the medical field. And so, you know, we're just kind of working with what we got so far. So now let's start chatting about kind of the different referrals, the care providers involved in this team approach to make a successful outcome for these individuals in the journey. Can you describe to us like what that care team looks like? Who is all involved to make it the most successful outcome for these clients? Absolutely. Our care team at the University of Utah is actually fairly large. Um, we meet monthly as a surgical interventions, but we also meet monthly as a business group, but it entails working with our family practice individuals who have been prescribing hormone therapy to, to people. It includes working with our OBGYN who will be helping with the vaginectomies and uterus removal or even egg preservation and ovaries, ovary sparing or ovary removal, depending on the individual's choices. We have physical and occupational therapy, both in the outpatient and inpatient world. We have our speech language pathologists that can help with voice uh, dissociation from their female voice to more of a masculine voice. But the biggest components of people that we work with quite often is our plastics team who helps not only with the top surgery, but also the creation of a phallus or metoidioplasty. But because it's so closely innervated with our genitalia, we also work with urology and urology does a lot of that reconstruction and urethral lengthening. So this team gets pretty big over the, over the process as you start adding all these different components these individuals may be going through, but our surgical interventions are always provided by our OBGYN team. Uh, plastics team is also our urology team. Great. Well, let's maybe start on the top and work our way down. So let's maybe talk about like what the top surgery entails, indications for physical therapy, both pre and post for that surgery specifically. And understanding some individuals may do both at the same time. I'm kind of curious what you've seen also, Katie, and what you guys find to have the best outcomes in regards to doing it independently or doing it in conjunction with the bottom surgery as well. You know, these surgical 
surgical interventions are very invasive in some areas and can take much longer than others. And so um, I have seen patients do them in stages, or I've seen patients say, hey, we're just going to hit this hard and we're going to do a lot all together. Um, starting from the top, we can even have some facial masculinization um, surgery. So more of a sharp nose, angles of the jaw being a little bit more rigid, kind of lowering of the eyebrows. There's lots that plastics can do and making the face look a little bit more masculine. They can even add a little bit of a tracheal bulge. So it gives them the appearance of more of an Adam's apple that I've sometimes seen paired with chest surgery or uh, top surgery for masculinization where individuals are removing of the breast tissues and they're creating a flat appearance. So having some thick muscles and having some really good pectoralis Uh, muscle thickness when we go into that surgery is very helpful. But what they'll do is they'll shape the breast tissue so that it follows that line of the pec. They'll remove all the adiposity. They'll take the nipple and move it a little bit more central and make it much smaller in size. Individuals who've gone through top surgery will have to bind. They want to try to uh, bind after surgery, I should say, because breast tissues are very common for swelling. And we know that even in our cisgender population. So they'll sometimes with these top surgeries, they'll have some JPs and some things that we as physical therapists can think about is they'll have an eight to 10 inch scar. And we want that scar to lay as flat and as smooth and um, as minimal as possible. We also want to think about those shoulders. You know, we've been holding some some tissue in this area, what's happening with our posture, what's happening with those pec muscles, are we getting some of that definition so we get a little bit more of that masculine shape to them, but then also what are they feeling in that posture, what are they feeling in the abdominals, because sometimes those abdominals will weaken, and so can we give them a little bit more of that flat abdominal appearance that some individuals with mask or would for a little bit more of a masculine stomach to them as well. Very nice. Yeah. I had a patient. I think one thing coming out of PT school, I was like, I'm never going to do wound care. I'm not going to even touch that. Why was that in my curriculum? And honestly, it does come up a lot more often than you would realize in school. Um, I was treating a patient after a top surgery for masculinity. And it was very interesting to see this patient producing very like keloid hypertrophic type scarring. And that individual actually went in for Kellogg injections, Kellogg, I'm sorry, Kellogg injections to try and smooth out um, that scar tissue to give it more of that flat appearance. And unfortunately, that individual had to go back under and they resected that hypertrophic scar. And it was about the size of I would say like a slug, like it was quite thick underneath that surface. And so um, when I've seen some of these individuals come into my clinic postoperatively, you know, we're doing some like scar tissue mobilization, trying to get that to flatten out, maybe some different um, assist, soft tissue assisted with scraping tools with like ASTEM or Graston. Um, we've even done some cupping to try and get things to, you know, really unbind to have some more mobility through that tissue, especially under like the armpits. I think people Mm -hmm. like that is always like the most tender and tight area down there that can really restrict, you know, some shoulder mobility. And I feel like this, these individuals going back to the binding population are similar exercises that we're giving those individuals to really, you know, open up, get them out of that upper cross syndrome, strengthening the back, opening the front. Um, What are other considerations that you've worked through with this patient population postoperatively, Katie? 
Yeah, you've said brilliant, brilliant things. And you're right, that scar goes pretty lateral because we want to remove all the breast tissue so it can go pretty wide um, underneath that armpit. And so sometimes those long thoracic nerves can be kind of irritated and we'll see some kind of soreness into the lats. And so getting those mobile is very helpful. Doing some climber stretch or some of our kind of lat opening up um, is wonderful too. Just like with our patients who have gone through mastectomies, we might see kind of some leftover swelling. We might see some lymphatic considerations. So doing some of that pumping up towards the clavicle and getting some of that swelling out of there, I think is another thing we could consider since those lymph nodes are so close to that armpit area as well. Just kind of managing their swelling is just another thing I've helped with. After top surgery, do these individuals still need to later in life go through different exams to make sure that we're not having breast cancer considerations still? Absolutely. So the guidelines are still kind of developing. We're still understanding what's happening 20, 30, 40 years after doing these surgeries. But the individuals, although they're on hormone replacement and oftentimes more masculinized hormones, we still have those female hormones. And having a breast, self-breast exams every month um, and also kind of working with your provider to have a breast exam. And if you find a nodule, doing some of those pre-screenings for mammograms, although that seems very traumatic for sometimes these individuals to be like, I don't have breast tissues. We still want to make sure that there's no tissues developing. The surgeons try to remove as much fat as possible, but we still have some tissue that is often there and making sure that we're screening for those breast cancer risks and men can develop breast cancer as well. We just want to make sure that they're cognizant of that, especially if they have a positive family history. With all the new genetic testing, oftentimes we can get tested to know some of our genetic risks. If you have a family with the BRCA gene or BRB1, or you have some of these other genes that are out there. Um, so some individuals may know their risks, and um, but over the age of 40, if you do have that family history, we do encourage them to kind of be doing some of those screens just to make sure that they don't get a mass or a lump or a tissue that seems abnormal. But also watching for nipple discharge or nipple discoloration can also be a sign of breast cancer that we want these people just to be aware of. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, now let's start kind of moving more down the chain and let's start talking about kind of those initial considerations with surgery in regards to hysterectomy with a vaginectomy. What does that look like? What is that procedure? And what are some of the considerations that a physical therapist should be thinking about with our patient? Yeah. So a hysterectomy um, with an upper vaginectomy is actually not at the same requirements as WPATH, um, but our company still requires that they get one to two letters of support from a mental health professional saying, yes, they know that this is something that they're thinking about. Yes, they do not want to have children with their own uterus. They do not want, they want to remove these. And that hysterectomy with upper vaginectomy, um, they, depending on the individual's goals, they may or may not do an ophorectomy or not. Um, and so what they'll do is they'll go in and remove that the cervix tissues, remove the uterus, but we need to keep that lower vaginal canal about the last two to three inches so that we can use that for your um, urethral reconstruction. If their choice is to move forward with the metoidioplasty or if their choice is to move forward with the um, phalloplasty, we need that lower vaginal area. But this is done anywhere from at least three to six months before the next bottom surgery. And um, the insurance coverage for this is something that is being a little bit more lenient. They're being a little bit nicer about this, especially for individuals who maybe want to identify as non-binary. So they don't want to have a female organs. They don't want to have 
um, these tissues, they don't want to go through menstruation because individuals who identify as males and then every month they're still getting their period can be really kind of traumatic and kind of challenging for kind of our mental health side of things as well. Um, and so moving forward with this vaginectomy is kind of the first phase um, of removing that and then kind of continuing to put them on hormone replacement therapy if uh, and finding the balance between their testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And now kind of moving down the, the pathway, let's maybe go through metoidoplasty and what that looks like, all the surgical indications, as well as kind of what those physical therapy appointments look like in the beginning regarding all that education that these individuals are going to need to know prior to that surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. Individuals have two choices for external genitalia surgery. They can do more of a metoidioplasty or more of a phalloplasty. Metoidioplasty is where we take the clitoris that is currently present, which oftentimes has enlarged because of long-term use of testosterone, and they will release the ligaments around the clitoris to elongate it. And then if we choose to close the vaginal canal, and some individuals may choose not to close the vaginal canal, some um, individuals may want both external and in, um, internal genitalia. So they may want receptive and or mildly penetrative intercourse or penetrate a partner. With the metoidius, they often are anywhere from two to four centimeters with the average being about three centimeters. So it can still tolerate some external friction, but won't be as long to participate in penetration of a partner, but they'll take the vat, the labia majora and fold them together. And by creating this kind of pouch, they'll take the vaginal tissues and reconstruct a urethra, bring that clitoral button down and then shape that clitoral button to look a little bit more like a phallus. And that is kind of first stage of metoidioplasty. These individuals um, will still have kind of a little bit of a Munn's pubis fat pad that sometimes they'll resect some tissues so it looks like the metoidius is a little bit larger. Metoidioplasties are getting the best results on individuals that are smaller in body size um, just because that fat pad can kind of, as they stand, cover that, that new phallus. Um, but it's kind of a three-part surgery where we lengthen the clitoris, we reconstruct the urethra and close the vaginal canal or leave it depending on the individual's goals, and then closing the outer labia majora and create this pocket. Once that phallus and that metoidioplasty surgery heals, those individuals still are eligible for testicular implant. So they can kind of insert those into that pouch of how they butterfly the labia majora closed and still have some external genitalia appearance. These individuals often can stand to urinate if they if the mons pubis does not cover the genitalia area, or they may choose to still sit to urinate as well. So depending on your goals and depending on how that how your body type is can also determine your outcomes for this metoidioplasty. Great. And now the moment we've all been waiting for, let's discuss a phalloplasty because this one is exceptionally more surgically intent um, requires many different body parts, a huge medical team, a lot longer hospital stays and considerations there as well. So why don't you talk to us first about like, what is a phalloplasty? What does that procedure look like? And then we can kind of go through the stages of this process. 
Yeah, a phalloplasty often comes from a graft or a flap from somewhere else in the body. So flaps and grafts are different. Um, a flap is something that's detached versus a graft is something that is um, detached. And then they take those tissues and create a tube within a tube to then attach it to the external genitalia to give an appearance of a phallus. Awesome. Now, where do these grafts and flaps come from? And what can the individual expect postoperatively based on what and where they choose to grab that extra tissue from? Yeah, these surgeries are anywhere from three stages upwards of multiple. I've seen a couple of different things depending on complications, but you can get these, you can get a flap from your forearm or a thigh flap or you can do a thigh graft to, to create the phallus. Any of the time that we take tissues from the thigh, often the phallus has a little bit of a larger diameter than those when we take it from the forearm. But depending on the surgical surgeon's preference, as well as the patient's preference, then we will, that's what will determine what, where we take the tissues from. Essentially, when they take off this tissue, if they take it from the forearm or if they take it from the leg, we're taking about three-fourths, if not five, eight, seven, six, eight, something like that for, you know, whatever those math end up being, but, um, of the forearms, we take a good portion of it, but we do take a nerve and an artery at the same time. And then we create kind of a tube within a tube. And so when I say a tube within a tube, we need to create the urethral tubing. And so while plastics is doing something with the graft, urology is doing something with the lower half. And so these surgeons are working very um, synchronized. It's really beautiful to watch. But as we create that urethral tubing that will attach, then we also have the outer tubing, which will become the phallus. So plastics will reconstruct this, or reconstruct these tissues while still being attached, so being attached to the forearm or being attached to the graft, um, because we want to keep that blood supply as long as possible. But then they'll transfer that to the external phallus uh, or external genitalia. So they'll reattach um, an artery. They'll reattach the nerves to the clitoris. They'll take about 50% of the clitoral nerves to graft into. So trying to give the phallus some sort of sensation. Some individuals may choose to not um, graft into clitoral nerves and some may choose to, depending on what their sexual goals are. So you can have your clitoris embedded in the phallus or even just above the phallus so that it still has sensation at the base. But then we'll take that kind of to reattach it to the genitalia where they've closed the vaginal canal, reconstructed the urethra, and then attach the urethra through the new phallus. Because we need so much of that healing process on that urethra, the, the vascular supply, we want to make sure that those tissues don't necrose, that they're getting enough blood supply. These individuals will actually have a super pubic cath. Um, and so the first little bit of being in the hospital, they're actually in the ICU and they're getting hourly Doppler checks to this phallus just to make sure that the blood supply is attaching and that the blood supply is going to these tissues. As the plastic surgeon is reattaching that phallus, the um, another group will be continuing to kind of close that labia majora and creating that beautiful butterfly, um, which eventually becomes the potential for testicular implants in the future. But as we, as we're healing and we're putting things together, depending on the surgical preference, you may or may not have a two-stage phallus um, or a one-stage. And the big difference with that is whether or not they're going to create a glansplasty. So um, at our hospital, we do a two-stage. So we attach the phallus and then we give it 
up to two weeks for the things to kind of heal before we go in and do a glansplasty, which is a glansplasty is where they go in and reshape that phallus head to look more like a penile um, tissue. So um, I should clarify, look like a circumcised penile tissues. Um, so they'll take a small graft either from the inner thigh or a small uh, flap of tissue, kind of fold it. So they create a lit ridge and kind of this penile tip um, and do that at week two. But while the lower half is healing, we still have to remember we have that graft site or the donor site. So whether it's a forearm, whether it's from the thigh, and often those areas are covered with the wound back for the first little while. So um, before we can put a split thickness skin graft on there. So in that stage two, where they're creating a glansplasty, so that second surgery, the forearm or donor site or leg site will also get a split thickness skin graft. And so we're waiting, we want that skin graft to kind of heal. When they took those grafts from the donor site or from the thigh, they also take a little bit of fat grafting. And so sometimes those individuals will notice the diameter difference in their forearm or in their thigh, just based off of how much tissue the surgeon ended up taking as well. Great. And now how many, like, tell us more about their hospital stay. What should they expect? How many days in the ICU? When are they getting up? How long are these catheters in place? How long are these wound backs in place? When do they get to go home? What does that look like? Yeah. You know, I am so thankful to work with some wonderful therapists that work with these individuals in the hospital. So for a metoidioplasty, they'll be in the hospital just two to four days. Those individuals, depending on how much urology reconstruction they had to go through, may or may not have a suprapubic catheter, but oftentimes they don't. They're able to kind of still urinate through their they're not the new tissues, but individuals with a phalloplasty, they're there a lot longer. Their journey stay is very invasive. So the first two to four days are is actually in the ICU with these hourly Doppler checks. And if everything looks good and they are in bed rest um, in that time, once they are out of the ICU and we know anywhere from day three to day four that they're doing well, they get transferred up to the floor. But in that ICU, you've got nurses coming in all the time. It's not really restful. There's a lot of things beeping. Your blood pressure is being monitored. You've got these, all these devices attached to you. You've got sequential compression devices on your calves. You're very bed bound, um, but you're, you're very cognizant as well. So that ICU stay can kind of create some of that delirium. Like, is it daytime? Is it nighttime? What's going on? So doing things that kind of keep you on your schedule is really great in that ICU. But when they get transferred to the floor, that's when PT, OT will start to come in and work with you. So we have to be very aware of the blood supply to this phallus, even at day three, day four. So we often create what's called a phallus clouds. So we have some tissue, um, some gauze around those tissues. We've got kind of a, a support device. And then our, our OT is brilliant. He recreates kind of a scrotal sling and a penile sling. And so anytime these, in, these individuals then transfer to modified bed rest, so they're able to get up to a chair, they're able to get to the bathroom for bowel movements, they're able to move around. They don't get to stay up for very long, but they can at least get out of bed. But anytime they are up, we've got this phallus cloud and we've got this penile support. So whether that support's coming from a, their other hand, because they're, we'll go back to their surgical hand in just a moment, whether it's in that um, other hand or these underwear or these devices that we create, they're able to get up and move a little bit. But we also have to be aware they oftentimes have closed the vaginal canal. Some individuals may choose to keep a vaginal canal, but they've also got that perineal wound. So things are very 
sore, swollen, puffy. We know swelling finds the, the path of least resistance. So those scrotal tissues will get very enlarged. Um, but being able to get up out of bed, move around, be able to get to the bathroom. I mean, that is just so helpful. They also have a suprapubic catheter. So that suprapubic catheter, their nursing staff will teach you how to manage that. So cleaning from the base out, talking about antibacterial things that they can use on that suprapubic. But that suprapubic will remain in place for anywhere for four to 12 weeks. Um, and the reason I say up to 12 weeks, it kind of depends on what, what is happening with their healing process what's happening with those wounds. And so our, our OT and PT will help with mobility, but then we also are talking about defecation mechanic. As we close those vaginal canals, we pulled those tissues forward. Sometimes learning to get a successful bowel movement, supporting or splinting to the perineum is something that we'll teach them in the hospital so that they don't feel like bowel movements are really difficult to empty. And then with that super pubic cath, we want to make sure that they just don't get any redness, irritation because of the where it lays right at the layer of your belt line. So flexible clothes, we'll talk to them about how to groom. Because the uh, the donor site typically has a wound back on it, that hand, um, you're able to move your fingers, you're able to open and close, but you've got to support your phallus and you got to have your hand. So these individuals won't go home from a phalloplasty until anywhere from day five to day seven, depending on the healing process and how they're doing, but they'll need lots of support because one hand has to support the phallus. One hand has this donor site or the thigh has a donor site with this wound back and it's pretty immobile. The first follow-up appointment in outpatient, which is usually anywhere from about day 10, we meet with them. So they discharge around day five, seven, we meet with them again at day 10. Then those individuals will get sent to outpatient OT um, or outpatient hand therapy because we do have some PTs that are hand therapists and they'll get a custom splint made for that wrist because we don't want any shearing or ripping of that donor site. We want those tissues to heal but then they have that splint made for when they do surgery number two at two weeks so that they can protect the new donor site and it can protect that forearm a little bit too. It's quite amazing when people see a device, they treat you a lot different than when they don't see a device. And so when you see a disability, people are a little bit more kind and then they see things, they're a little bit easier to adapt. So um, it makes a big difference for the people to be able to say, hey, I've got this forearm splint, don't bump my arm. absolutely it's like those patients with poor balance that maybe don't really need a cane but they have the cane for that like protective bubble absolutely absolutely well why don't we just well why don't you now describe to us kind of the post-op pt what's that evaluation look like what are all the considerations um what is the education post-operatively and what does that process with pt look like how often at what point post-operatively in the weeks and months after are you working with these individuals? Yeah. While the individuals are going through this top surgery, hysterectomy, bottom surgery consultations, bottom surgery one, bottom surgery two, who knows if they need anything more just because of complications, we kind of zipper in there with, with our surgeons. And we often prefer to meet with people somewhere between their hysterectomy and their bottom surgery. Our OBGYNs are really great at recognizing if there's pelvic pain. So there, if there is pelvic pain or some dysfunctional pelvic floor uh, issues, we may even meet with them prior to the hysterectomy, but oftentimes we meet in between. And what we do in that first pre-op visit is what we do, right? Things that we already know. We, we screen for bowel and bladder health. We take a history. We make sure pelvic floor is coordinated. We make sure pelvic floor can drop. We make sure that they know how to get their pelvic floor moving. But the biggest meat of what I do 
is really a lot of education um, and kind of explaining why and what their pelvic floor is going to have happen. So as we create this new phallus, we're taking those vaginal tissues and pulling them forward. And then we're closing the vaginal canal, which often pulls the rectum forward a little bit. They're also releasing the clitoral nerves and bringing them down. And so we'll see these kind of length, new length tension relationships, but then also trying to explain a little bit about what is happening with these tissues. So prior to even going into the hospital, prior to what they might expect after, I talk a lot about, you know, what is normal bladder pain? What is normal catheter care? What is abnormal care? What are UTI infections? You know, being prepared for some swelling in this region. So knowing some like lymphatic things that they can do in the hospital. What is it like to kind of be on this modified bed rest of only 2000 steps a day? I have to giggle when they say, oh, we don't want you doing 2000 steps and just walking into their post-op visit is 2000 steps because <laughs> our hospital is so big sometimes. But then also just being another person for them to voice some some concerns or mental health um, things with. But in my education, I often kind of break it down into a couple of different areas. So in that pre-op education, I'm talking about continuing to do your drinking habits, continue to um, watch for infections as you're emptying the catheter, you know, continue to watch if you're starting to feel bladder spasms. They are put on an antispasmodic for their bladder and some prophylactic antibiotics. But when those are done, I want them to know, hey, if things are normal versus what's not normal. But then I also explain to them that we'll help them through their voiding trials. Um, and I just kind of leave it at that. So postoperatively, we'll get a little bit more into that voiding trials. But preoperatively, we're talking a lot about what are supportive, supportive underwear that's out there. What are some supportive, like some clothes that they can do, kind of what to expect in these different phases. And just kind of give them that reality of like, yeah, the first month you're pretty immobile. Um, you need a lot of help. Your your hand is unable to help you cut vegetables and you're not able to really walk around and get to the grocery store. And so you need a lot of familial support. And I'll, if they bring a support person in, I'll talk to them a little bit about that need for support as well, kind of in that post-operative state um, and kind of what that really means. You'll have to log roll to get out of bed because we don't want a lot of downward pressure on that phallus or metoidioplasty. And what does that really look like? But then also making sure that they know kind of what is normal bowels. We should never be straining. We should never be valsalvaing. If you're having difficulty getting it to the exit because of anesthesia, um, dehydration, food, things that you've eaten, not eaten um, because of pain medication, we want to really just make sure that they don't ever get to that constipated state or that backup state as well and clearing some of those pelvic floor in the posterior half dyssynergia conversations. I'm looking for all of that in my first visit. Great. And so for those that maybe don't understand maybe the dyssynergia, so Katie's looking to make sure like when the patient is pushing to open and release bowels, that that's actually happening. And some people, what happens is when they think they're straining, they're actually contracting and squeezing and pulling up and in. So we want to make sure that they have that right coordination when they're squeezing. It's, it's elevating. When they're pushing, it's pushing down and out and opening up. Um, we're not seeing belly going super, super hard. Um, maybe the patient's not holding their breath. So sometimes we'll get like that biofeedback on them. We'll have them on a commode and really like practice those release techniques to make sure that they're got the right coordination. Um, I always tell my patients, we got to practice how we play. So we can't, you know, we got to practice in those seated positions on the commode when we have like that open space in the perineum and that saddle region. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Great. And so, yeah, talk to us more now maybe about what are some of these common outcomes postoperatively and and how you guys in your team help promote these positive outcomes. Yeah. So postoperatively, do it all again. We are asking them, what are they struggling with when it comes to bladder care or phallus care? What are they struggling with when it comes to bowel movements? We get back into that wonderful lymphatic and wound care, things that I never thought I would do, but I do, <laughs> you know, as we, as we look back at how these tissues are healing, but I just kind of rescreen everything. But then we start to prepare them. One of the big things that we will do when it comes to this support is also Besides our orthopedic things, we also talk about stretching your hips and getting your mobile since you've been kind of immobile for the first, we usually meet with them about week four after their, their phallus. So they've had their second reconstruction. And then two weeks after that, we're meeting with them. Um, and we're starting to talk a little bit about voiding trials. And this is something that I think physical therapists are really brilliant at. So thinking about the surgical innovation and the surgical process they went through, they have their neobladder or their normal bladder, they have their normal urethra, and now they have a two parts urethra. So they have their reconstructed urethra that we've taken the vaginal tissues and closed up, but then they also have their phallus urethra. And so anywhere from week four to week six, depending on the healing process and what's happening, because a lot of times as we close things up and pull them together, there can be some wound to hissing, there can be some um, tissue breakdown, we worry about the blood supply. So not until all of those things have healed, will we even consider doing some voiding trials. But what we'll work on is talking to our patients about clamping the suprapubic. So this is done in conjunction with our urology team, but we'll talk about trying to empty through the phallus. And then once they've emptied through the phallus, we then have them milk the phallus. So as I said, the native urethra, the new kind of reconstructed urethra, and then the phallus urethra, there can still be urine in that, those tissues. And so by milking the phallus, we make sure that those tissues empty and we're making sure that no one is getting kind of post-void dribble. But we also want to make sure that they are not retaining any urine in there and creating more breakdown or develop a fissure or um, develop any kind of fistula, which is, I said, you get some pockets of fluid in that kind of phallus. But then I also teach them to kind of double void. So sitting down or using your super pubic catheter and see what still comes out. As we've done with our our regular patient population, we want that post-void residual to be less than 50. So when they empty the first few times, whether it's in sitting or in standing, if they go again and void a second time, whether it's in sitting or with their catheter still in place, we want that post-void residual to be less than 50. So they're doing this kind of diary and journal the first few weeks. And once they know that they're truly emptying, that's when we go in and actually do a cystoscopy with urology make sure that everything looks good, but then they will also do um, tests where they put dye into the bladder. And so by putting dye into the bladder, they're able to start to see if the bladder is emptying all the way. And also is that phallus creating any strictures or creating any kind of pocket of fluid? By seeing that, and we know that everything is emptying well and looks good, then we will take out that suprapubic catheter. And this is the one thing that really shocks me about suprapubic catheters is that you just pull it out. You just take it out <laughs> and there's no, um, they don't have to close it. They don't have to do anything more to it, but this voiding trial, we want them to be really successful. We want them to watch for signs of infections. We want them to make sure that they're emptying all the way. And oftentimes their goals are to stand 
to empty. And so teaching them these double void strategies at the beginning teaches bladder how to push it out through the phallus and helps prevent a lot of those UTI um, things. So although our goal is to maybe empty and standing, if they're more successful in sitting as their first learning and then eventually get to standing, those are some things that we can help them guide through and kind of look, are they restricting their fluid? What are they doing? And making sure bladder empties well is really great. One of the other things that I want that I kind of consider or think about is because of how these tissues are being pulled forward, sometimes that perineal body or that superficial and deep transverse get kind of tugged forward. And so sometimes we have to check for pelvic pain in that area. And we need those tissues to be able to be pliable for those bowel movements. And so I'm also kind of clearing bowels postoperatively, making sure that they're not developing a fissure towards the vaginal opening because of how they pulled the vaginal opening forward. I'm screening for making sure hemorrhoids aren't there. We're screening to make sure bowel is emptying well. But then once they pass bowel and bladder, then we get into the thickness of our kind of return to sexual function. And this is something that's kind of takes us a while. It takes about three to four months before we really say, yeah, let's really move forward with kind of exploring sexually. We want them to be able to start to feel and make sure that they're getting sensation in this area, at least at the base by six weeks. We have them start doing some exploration where they start to feel at the base of the phallus. Um, But before they can start to be arousal, we usually wait about 12 weeks for them to be able to climax. But once the bladder and the bowel are cleared, then we may even consider some things for penetrative intercourse. So we may consider some testicular implants. We may consider um, a penile implant anywhere from, and again, we're considering those at those three month mark, but we won't, we won't do surgery for at least another three to six months. So anywhere from six months to a year, we may then consider getting these implants, but then we start to talk a little bit about you know, what is this area feeling? And some people will get some great feeling in their phallus. And as we, as physical therapists, we know we want to promote what we have. So we may have them start to do some light touch along the phallus, do some vibration along the phallus, really trying to enhance the sensory input into that cortical input of what their phallus is feeling to their brain. So then we start to work on a lot of those sensory things. And I feel like inter- introducing that early, somewhere in that four to six week mark, really just helps these people have better outcomes in the end because they feel attached to their anatomy. They feel attached to these tissues. And that can be really helpful for sexual function as well. And what are some of the outcomes for sexual function postoperatively within this patient population? Um, so that's that's a great question. And we have a lot of variability in the data and the research that comes out. Um, but a lot of people, anywhere from 50 to 70%, can continue to feel sexual function. Now, some people who choose to have a phallus are asexual, or some people, that's not their goal. And so being able to feel along the, that phallus, having 50 to 70% be successful is great. I have had some wonderful patients with outcomes where they got that penile implant and they can feel penetration to their patient, um, but they're anywhere from 18 to two years out before they feel like, man, I can really sense along my phallus. And I feel like I can use that penile implant to the way that they want it utilized. But there's some great outcomes coming out. And I think as we gather more individuals with the surgery and we get better at microsurgery of those nerves, I think that 50 to 75% of patient population who do have sexual arousal and function in these tissues. Now remember, penile tissues will not engorge or erect themselves but they have good sensory in this area that will continue to improve as we do more and more surgeries. Awesome. 
And then what are other considerations that maybe we haven't discussed yet that you think is important to this aspect of our trans healthcare journey? Yeah. So because the surgery is so many steps and so many pieces, we also have to consider all the things that are affected. So although as maybe pelvic health therapists, we're focusing a lot more on the phallus and the bottom half. I am still very cognizant. Are they getting returned to normal function from their donor site? So what are their hand function? How is their hand moving? It takes a while for that split thickness to reattach. So they get a wound back and they have a wound back for the first two weeks and they have a split thickness skin graft. Then they are splinted in, in for four to six weeks. And then they're in a compressive device for up to six months. So just more of a compressive sleeve that's custom fitted to them. Are they moving their hand? Are they moving their elbow? Are they getting that tissue, bending their wrist? Are they able to get dorsiflexion or a wrist planner? Oh, I'm thinking of the foot. Excuse me. <laughs> Are they able to get wrist flexion and wrist extension? Um, so I'm also really cognizant of like, what are their hand doing from their donor site? Um, or if they have a thigh donor site, are they getting hip extension, hip internal and external rotation? What is rectus fem doing? Are they getting mobility through that tissue? Are there, is there one leg staying strong? Although we don't take muscle from these donor sites, we still know that pain inhibits the muscles in that area. So I'm thinking a lot about kind of how is their hand scar healing? What's going on? Is it staying moist? And um, are they not getting any kind of shearing or pocketing from their donor sites? The other things I consider too, is I'm really watching that closure of the labia. Is anything kind of dehissing? So as they close the labia and create a scrotal sac, that is a common spot for wound breakdown. It's on the undersurface of the phallus, so it's not easily seen. But I'm also looking for, is anything from the closure of that scrotal sac to where it's attached to the base, or is skin breaking down? I think for wound care, and this is something I've just kind of seen in clinic, because we don't, we sit on that tissue, we, that tissue is where areas of swelling will go and individuals are not always looking at that. We are a great clinician to make sure we're looking at that wound he healing and are we seeing any kind of wound breakdown, but also because of how they close and pull everything forward, we don't want to develop any kind of fistula. We don't want to develop any kind of opening. So if you're seeing some tissue that doesn't look open or they're saying, hey, I'm feeling really wet after I urinate or during urination, I'm noticing there's some wetness down here. I definitely want to say, is there something going on with that urethra? Is there something going on with that urinary tissues as well? And also we can develop restrictures and fistulas and kind of complications with the phallus urethra or even that kind of reconstructed urethra at any point in this journey. Um, so the further away from surgery, the further away we are from thinking about those complications. But if they come in and say, yeah, my flow rate has changed or I'm really straining to empty my bladder, the first thing I really think about is what's happening with that urethra and what's happening with those tissues as you're voiding through there. That can be seen in metoidioplasties or even phalloplasties where that urethra flow rate is changing. And if they have seen a difference in that, then I really kind of spark, okay, what's happening? Also, because of needing to empty those tissues quite often and individuals, is this is a sweaty, warm, moist, I worry about yeast infections and in those kind of folds. I worry about skin breakdown in the labia. Um kind of where the labia meets the thigh and just kind of hot and sweatiness to this area since it is so swollen. 
This is where lymphatics are great. You know, is it lymphatic swelling or is this swelling that something's going on and watching for signs of infections along those skin is something else we kind of think about too. What we've seen in the research is about one in three. Now, this is what's published. (laughs) And I might argue that sometimes we take care of things without publishing our mistakes, but one in three may experience a complication at some point in the first six to nine months. And so being another person to listen for some of these complications, looking at what's happening to the tissues, wound breakdown, swelling, urinary uh, fistula, fissures, um, difficulty with bowel movements, tearing, as these are all things that we should be another person to kind of screen for and say, does this feel right? Does this not feel right? Um, anecdotally, you know, our program says we think about one in one in two will experience some sort of complication, but only one in three will need a surgical intervention for it. So that kind of matches what some of the literature is saying too. That's great. And out of curiosity, are there better outcomes in regards to the donor site, the thigh versus the arm, or is it really just based on the diameter for that patient's goals? More often across the nation, people are taking the forearm as more of a donor site um, because it's equivalent to not only diameter, but also size. I think the forearm has faster healing process than the thigh just because of how we bend and we move and we twist and our thighs are helping us with walking, it's a little bit hard to splint the thigh from getting any kind of shearing. So when they get to that stage two where the split thickness skin graft is going over their donor site, sometimes that has a harder time adhering on the thigh unless you're pretty immobile. Um, And so I I think across the nation, more people feel comfortable doing the forearm and that's more ideal for some. But again, they can fat graft, they can reconstruct that forearm so it can look a little bit different, but some people don't want to have those kind of scars or if they have tattoos on that forearm, they don't want to mess up the beautiful art that they have had. So then they can, will choose the thigh graft. Um, they can do liposuction and some kind of shrinking to the phallus postoperatively, but that also leads to more complications for the healing of the phallus, if we need to do some additional things to make that phallus smaller, if we take it from the thigh. Thank you. I know I didn't put that in our summary, but as we were talking, I was curious about that. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think that's the best thing that we can be as therapists is be curious, right? Say, I don't know, but I will use what I do know. And that's the big thing with this patient population as well, is we don't quite have firm standards from the academy or firm standards that have been published. We have ideas that have been out there and we have an article for our vaginal plasty patients. But when it comes to our phalloplasty patients, we're still kind of figuring it out. And I think using what you know from cisgender and using what you think would make sense and applying it to this patient population is brilliant because this is where we're going to continue to grow in the field of physical therapy. So I think being curious is wonderful because it makes you think outside the box and ask the surgeons and ask people, what do you know about this? And then it just helps you grow your practice. So brilliant. Well, great, Katie. If nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? I think, you know, treat this individual with kindness and love and appreciation and just say, you know, I'm, I haven't seen very many of these and just being honest or saying, Hey, what are your goals? And recognize that this is maybe a continuum for these individuals. Like they may choose to have an external phallus, but then choose to continue to retain their, their vaginal canal, or they may choose to want a phallus and their goals are not to stand to urinate. And the kind of just being open to say, what are your, your identity? What do you, what do you want from me? How can I support you in this? And just recognize that 
although our trans feminine patients may be from start to finish two years, most of these patients are on a, anywhere from a two to five year journey for everything that they've gone through, through top surgery and, and bottom surgery and just the costs and the re the time that it takes to get to that point and just kind of recognize, you know, I'm here to support you and I want your muscles to work well. And that's what I say to my patients all the time. I know you have a urologist and I know you have a plastic surgeon. I'm here to talk to you about your muscles. Let's get your muscles working well. And then what can we do within our scope of practice and continue to just build a strong relationship with these individuals? Well, great. Thank you for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlpt.com. I would like to thank Katie for coming on the show today. And Katie, if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Yeah, I'm blessed to work for the University of Utah South Jordan Clinic. We can be reached at 801-213-4500, or you're welcome to um, continue to do some research through our trans health program that has a website. Um, if you Google Trans Health University of Utah, you'll be able to find that and connect with a lot of the providers that I mentioned through this team that we're a part of. Thank you again for listening and tune in next month. Also remember to subscribe to this podcast in order to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.